to Northern Exposure, the podcast that we hope will help Canadian medical students explore their potential future careers as Canadian physicians. We're your hosts. I'm Ann Keller. And I'm Hannah Levy. Our guest today is Dr. Kwajo Kiramantang. Dr. Kiramantang is a critical care physician at the Ottawa Hospital and Montfort Hospital, a senior clinician investigator at the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute, and an associate professor in the Division of Palliative Care at the University of Ottawa. He completed his MD at the University of Alberta, his internal medicine residency and palliative care fellowship at the University of Ottawa, and his Master's of Health Administration at Dalhousie University. Dr. Kira Mantang's area of research interest is resource optimization in the ICU, and he is the host of the podcast, Solving Healthcare. So welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. We are excited to have you. Just a bit of a roadmap for today's conversation. We've split our interview into three parts. The first is to talk about you and your job. The second is the story of how you landed where you are. And then finally, we want to dig into the nitty gritty details about what the day-to-day life is like. Fantastic. I am here for you. All right. Well, let's jump in. So one of the reasons that we wanted to start this podcast was we wanted to get a feel for what specialties are are really like. So to that end, can you give us an elevator pitch for your job as an intensive care physician? In other words, a short sales pitch. Short sales pitch? Well, I'll tell you this much. It's awesome. It's straight up awesome. <laughs> I'm a type of guy that doesn't like the like a routine, like I don't like walking into a job and knowing exactly what it's going to be like. And ICU is amazing for that. You'll walk in, it seems like a normal day. You got a couple of patients with urosepsis, with these minor ailments that you have got a grip on. And then all of a sudden, upper GI bleed gets wheeled in the door or somebody that's got wicked ARDS that needs to be intubated immediately walks into the door. And you need to be thinking on your toes. You need to be thinking about how to facilitate your team. There's so many elements that makes it constantly challenging, evolving. Like there's not a single day that's exactly the same. And so you got to be someone that's willing to think on their toes to be able to also have a broad scope of of medical issues because not only are there going to be internal medicine issues, you might have gynae issues, you might have gen surge issues, you might have vascular surgery issues. So you, you do really have to have that broad scope of knowledge. And so it, and it's it's so amazing that way. And then the other part is the teamwork. Like you really are a team. You know, like I can't count how many times the respir- respiratory therapists have made a suggestion which has saved a life, literally. Or, you know, that physio that's gone that extra mile to get that patient off the ventilator through their rehabbing and exercises. And um, the other part of critical care that's amazing is that you work a week at a time. Usually you'll range from 12 to, say, 18 weeks, depending on where you are. But that's a lot of time to work on your other parts of your craft. So whether it's, um, you know, your research, your education, your administrative duties, or if you're in the community, you just literally take that time to enjoy life, like uh, travel, be more active in family life, um, you know, work on a side hustle, whatever it might be. So those weeks that are, you're on are intense and, and challenging. But when you're off, especially in the community, you're off. So there's a lot of pluses in, in ICU life. I know that was not a very short elevator pitch, but I'll just say that is I, I was extremely quickly attracted to the lifestyle. I thought it's something that suited me very well. 
It's okay. We can say it was a long elevator ride. <laughs> yeah, we're going to the 95th floor. We'll ask you a little bit more about the lifestyle and what it looks like on a day-to-day bit later. But sort of given your description of your job, how do you feel that your personality complements it? My personality, well, I think you have to be comfortable with uncertainty. And this is something that you will, you have to adapt to. Because a lot of times you don't know exactly what's happening. A patient comes in with undifferentiated shock. It's your responsibility to save their life and to stabilize them. And not necessarily knowing what is happening is a big part of what you do. And just being having that comfort level, which, you know, for me, I'm not ultra type A. I wouldn't even say I'm really type A. But like, you know, knowing in my mind that from experience that, you know, we'll be able to manage. We're going to be able to deal with what's in front of us. Suits the job well. I think in terms of working with a team, like you got to be able to be open to suggestions, whether it's your direct allied health or other consultants and being able to draw the most out of your your team. So sometimes it means being a little bit harder on, on your team members. Sometimes it means being softer and giving them a chance to open up. And so, you know, that's a, a quality or personality thing that uh, works well. And then just like the love for action. Like, I won't lie to you. Like, it's, uh, you know, like we had a, my last day or two in the ICU, a massive upper GI bleed. And I'll tell you, the patient had a positive outcome. But, man, was that, like, exciting in that way. Because, like, you know, you got 14 people in the room. You got blood products hanging. You got to intubate the patient urgently, and they're unstable. So you got to make sure you do it well. You have other services, interventional radiology, GI needing to be at the bedside to get that urgent scope done. You got to manage their sedation while they're getting that done. Like it was just boom, 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 boom. And thinking on your toes, what ne- what's the next blood product that needs to go in? Like that to me is is exciting. And I don't obviously wish it on anybody to, to get ill, but if, if that's coming on our ship, it's exciting to manage, especially if we could facilitate a positive outcome. I'm hearing the intensity of the specialty, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on a couple of survey studies that have come out on an internal medicine residents' perceptions of the specialty. So specifically kind of looking at the negative perceptions on it, uh, it was thought that there's a poor work-life balance, but also higher rates of burnout than other specialties. So what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, in and this is just anecdotal, and I, I haven't seen much burnout in terms of uh, my colleagues. And I think perception is one thing, but it's, you know, have you lived it? You know, I think internal medicine residents that do four weeks straight of ICU, I mean, I'd imagine that everyone's tired, especially if you don't have an interest in it. You could really see how it could be intimidating and scary, and you could envision people burning out. This is to say that there isn't a risk of burning out because certainly hours can be long. They can be challenging depending on how you structure your work environment for your, your hospital. Like I work at three different sites. And I mean, one site that I used to work at, we would do initially when there was less busy, like 70, 72 hours straight. And that was exhausting. And so, like, we all looked at ourselves in the mirror and said, we can't keep this up. And so, adjusted accordingly. But the hours are one thing. The, the, to, to me, the biggest thing for burning out is the, 
when there's uh, family disputes, when there's uh, disagreement with goals of care, that to me is the most exhausting and demoralizing part of the job. You have somebody that's 90 that, that's got every comorbidity in the, on earth and families insisting that everything needs to be done. And, and the way it's set up is that, you know, we, we're not in a position to withdraw care. So we're, we're still providing this just for lack of a better word, futile care where the care they're receiving is not going to change their outcome. That's demoralizing. That affects the team. It's exhausting having those conversations with family. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's tough. And that, that I could see leading to a lot of burnout. Like that's for sure. But, um, once again, from my anecdotal experience working at multiple sites, I haven't seen too much burnout where people are like, I need time away. Work is getting overwhelming because we, we structure it. So we get that time off, you know, like that time off to recuperate is so important. And personally, I take it very seriously. Like a couple of days after I see you, ramp up the self-care, hit the gym when we're non-COVID time, play my hockey, do my interpretive dancing, uh, like whatever it takes to to get that uh, mindset back. Thanks for addressing those. Um, and are there any other kind of stereotypes about intensivists that you know about? And what are your thoughts on those? Yeah, I, I was thinking about that. And maybe you guys could help me out, but... For us, we just have the stereotypes among the different specialties in ICU. So, like, if you come from a surgical background, rounds are done in 10 minutes. People get super excited about doing the procedures. Everything's fast. You know, in, internal medicine backgrounds, the opposite. Rounds take four and a half hours, slow, <laughs> meticulous. Everything's being analyzed. What's the 15th thing on the differential diagnosis? that no one's ever heard about, that you got to look up on up to date. And you know what I mean? That's a stereotype. Anesthesia background, once again, kind of middle of the road, like the procedure's done. And then uh, what else is there? Emerge? Yeah, I think maybe leaning more towards the surgical side where things are done more efficiently and, and stuff like that. But intensivists in general, I, I'm, not, I'm not actually, maybe you guys, what do you, what do you guys hear about uh, intensivists? I'll confirm or deny some of these allegations. <laughs> it's not one that even really I had thoughts on. So perhaps the lack of stereotype is the stereotype in this case. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought hard about it. I'm like, I don't know. What do people say about us? I not. I, don't know. I, I had one which is not based in literature uh, and is based on complete hearsay but it's sort of more of the personality type of like that adrenaline junkie like seeking the rush that kind of thing yeah yeah I, th I think i think for the most part that's true there's occasionally you'll get somebody with an internal medicine background that you would think would get excited about that kind of stuff but still gets quite anxious but in general i think you, that's a good uh, a good one to to mention We'll have to start surveying more of our peers for stronger uh, stereotypes. No. <laughs> so the second part, we want to hear about how you went to where you are. So taking us back to decisions that you made and uh, other paths that you considered and, and ultimately how you wound up as an intensivist. Yeah, I love that question because, you know, especially when you, as you guys uh, for med students out there, my most of us had a very circular journey. So I got into med school thinking I wanted to be a pediatrician. 
And speaking of stereotypes, I like I love kids. I have three of my own. I coach, try and coach my kids' teams, like assistant coach my kids' teams, and I, I, like I love kids. But loving kids is not enough for pediatrics. It, the, my personality, like it's a very up, like uh, I'm trying to go politically correct way of saying this. People are, are you know, t- very type A. And everything is super stressful. You know, I remember I was doing an elective at uh, another site and kid had a splenomegaly, so a large spleen. And I was just palpating the spleen and the resident just was on top of me saying, careful, you don't want to rupture the spleen. And I'm like, I ain't rupturing no spleen, yo. Like, I ain't drop kicking anybody in the, the spleen right now. Like, I'm not, I might be strong, but I ain't that strong. Okay, I'm being delicate. And and to me that was this that was when I'm like uh, enough and um, so then I uh, then I was a bit lost you know because I I put a, a lot of eggs in that basket and then ended up had a real struggle between a merge and internal medicine and then I did an elective at Foothills Hospital in Calgary in ICU and the second I walked in the door I was like this is my jam this is it. I, I remember there was like two or three burn victims. There was a, a patient that came in with a strider that needed a urgent trach, they thought. And so they were trying to decide if they had to do it at the bedside or in the, or in the OR. Later that week, there was an upper GI bleed, but first a real true scary upper GI variceal bleed. And I was like, man, you got the you got these intellectuals, great teaching. You got the action. You got the variety. I was like, this is my huckleberry. This is what I got to do for sure. <laughs> and so then it was a question of emerge versus internal medicine. And in my humble opinion, the internists were were just had that a, a bit better knowledge base compared to emerge. And also it was a quicker way of getting in, doing ICU. And so, yeah, I, I ended up doing internal. Like I'm not an internist by like stereotype. So it wasn't didn't love it, love it, but I love the knowledge and the teaching. And so did that, then asked myself, how do I make my application more attractive in a competitive field? So decided to do palliative care, which, you know, I certainly love that part of my job too. And certainly glad I, I went that path. I just, there was a um, doctor, Dr. John Seeley, who was one of my, I wouldn't say kind of mentors like I just I idolized him he was a palliative care doc in, in Ottawa that it just had a way about him just had a way of calming any situation and putting everyone at peace the team the family the patient and I'm like this is amazing I, I want to be a John Seely to people and so I added that to the the, the list of things to do so I did that at the same time as I did my ICU training and then there were like no ICU jobs. So I d- joined the academic palliative care job in 2010. So right after graduating and then there were no ICU jobs anywhere. So I ended up going to Bell Vegas, Belleville, Ontario. Props to the crew in Bell Vegas. I love those guys. I worked with them for a year, got, gained tons of experience, which I was grateful for. Then I started working in the Sioux, Sault Ste. Marie, Sub Sioux crew. Uh, that was a lot of fun, a lot of great docs up there. 
At the same time, I started a master's of health and men because I always knew I wanted to try and get an academic position. And so I, I just kind of committed to myself here. We'll try this and see what happens. Then got some local work at Montfort Hospital, thank God. So we were just starting to have a family then. So it was nice to be in the same city. And then about a year or two-ish after that, I got the job at the Ottawa Hospital and um, started research program about a year or two after that. And, and then everything magical happened. It was great. Were there any other factors that played into your decision about either which specialty to pursue or where you wanted to be geographically other than intensive care, the specialty itself? Other factors. I just like the fact in ICU you would have dedicated time for what I call your craft or your, your academic duties. Like I think if you're, say you're, um, for example, respirologist or a general surgeon and you gotta, you still gotta do that research or your admin duties. And yeah, you could book off some time or you would have some time allocated for it. But I like the idea of having like a week or two just dedicated to like research so you could stick your teeth into it. Like I'd rather have dedicated time than just finding spots during the day to try and squeeze a bunch of things and I find it less productive. Like I said, I, you know, with ICU, I just, I guess what really just stuck out was the, the variety. Like there's not too many specialties where you could say your day, you don't know what's happening. Like emerge to a certain extent, you're on that resuscitation side, like who knows what's coming through. There's a lot of times, a lot of time you got to spend in like the weak and dizzy and the non-acute stuff, which would drive me personally crazy. To me, I like I like to deal with the higher level stuff, the life and death stuff. And um, but yeah, that that's otherwise. And then in terms of location, like because of the nature of ICU, there wasn't really a ton of options. So we knew we would go where the work was, and luckily Ottawa is a wonderful place to raise a family wonderful city at all my sites i feel like it's like a team like we're really connected especially the during covid peri covid it's been a ton of like bonding as a team moments because you know there's nothing like a crisis to make your team more unified if if you're functional and so i yeah no absolutely but yeah, those are those are basically the reasons. So you mentioned research. When did you develop an interest in research, or when did you know that you wanted research to be a part of your career? Yeah, that it's a good question because I had a very circular approach to this. I've I have a, some strong opinions about it. I always liked. I mean, most of us have a science background go, going into medicine. Like we, I think we have that that kind of hypothesis generating. Like let's see. If we write an experiment, what would the result be? I think we all have that in us. And I certainly have always had that present. I just didn't have the tools to execute. So I remember having that interest in residency, having these projects. But I think the, my mentorship was what lacked a bit. And so like I had tons of questions that I thought were novel and would I would love to be able to answer and just didn't know how, how best to achieve that, especially not having an epi background or anything like a master's of anything related to research. And so I worked on a couple of projects during residency that weren't that great. 
and then during my master's, got to work on some projects that would later become publications. But the one thing I would say that was the click for me was just to work on your strengths. So like if you look at our group, we've, we produce a lot of papers in a short period of time. But I my strength is asking the question and creating the team to be able to execute. I don't do any of my stats. I don't know how to do stats really anymore. I I get a lot of help. I, I delegate a lot to be able to achieve our goals. That was the one key approach to research that changed everything. So I hired my own research assistant out of my own money about four years ago or something along those lines and helped me with the stats, helped me with submitting the paper, helped with doing the REB and allowed me to be way more efficient and allowed me to stick with the stuff that I love to do. And that was a game changer. My whole career, that single step might have like, like we wouldn't probably be talking now if it wasn't for that play, for real. And so my advice for those that are thinking about it is ask yourself how you want to do it. There isn't a cookie cutter way to approach it. You don't have to know, you know, how to do logistic regression. You don't have to be an expert in machine learning. We have some AI projects that are underway. I can't do a lick of machine learning. I wouldn't even know how to set it up. I don't know if you use R. I don't I don't know anything, but I know the 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 principles of it. I know who can help us execute on it and I can present it. So that's my one one major advice I would say to those that are thinking about doing it. Well, that resonates very much with me and has her master's in epi, so she's fine. Um, but but um, it is definitely helpful for someone like me to know that there are options to get involved in research, even if you don't necessarily have the background, you don't necessarily know everything as long as you find the right people. Because let me tell you, this is one of the things that I hate about medicine is we're not out of the box thinkers. Like I'm not, like if you go to any research meeting uh, amongst, you know, uh, I could say mostly in the critical care area or the palliative care area, I'm a minority, no pun intended, in like this approach to to research. And my whole mantra has been, when, especially when I've been with the research types, is like, why not? Why are we turning away people that have all these genius ideas but don't know how to execute? Why don't we facilitate this thing? Why don't we streamline it so that they can get encouraged you, and like, if they want to get more involved, they want to know the, the 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 statistical methods to achieve that. Then they can they can step. They they'll have an opportunity to do so. But while they're learning, why not just help them? In medicine in general, I think we are very. This is a way to do it. This is the only way to do it. We've done it for seventy eight years. We're gonna keep doing it this way. And what I encourage, especially your generation, is like, hell no, man. There's smarter ways to do these things. Well, that was wonderfully encouraging. I am going to move us along to the last part of our of our podcast, where we dig into the nitty gritties about your job. We know that there's no such thing as typical, especially in ICU. But what does typical look like for you, either in a typical day or a typical week before COVID? Yeah, like typical day in the ICU. Yeah, I mean, there is there is typical depending on your pre-call or post-call, but uh, you get there anywhere from 7 to 7.30. We teach the residents at 7.30, usually a 45-minute talk. We would go through the list of overnight issues and, and admissions after that and go see our patients. For, for me, often I'll see them before that, depending on what, if I'm teaching or not, and really 
get a sense of what the issues are with each one of them, come up with a plan. This is one thing that drives me nuts about intensivists. Though I'm going to say this right now. See your patients before, have the plan before rounds, okay? Because you want your rounds not to be four and a half hours. Have the plan already. You should already know what's happening. There should be no surprises. Oh, Mrs. X had a fever last night? Oh, man, let's go through the 19 things on the differential that caused the fever. No. Know exactly what's going on. And then maybe you get the kids. I call the residents the kids. And get the kids to like, hey, what do you guys think what's going on? What's on your differential? Top five things, not the top 20 things. And then come up with the plan. Guide the plan because you already know what the plan is. This drives me nuts. Everyone should know what's going on before rounds start, personally. Okay, so I, to go off on that tangent. So you see your patients before rounds, have a plan. And then we go around as a team. Um, usually you see the, the sicker patients first. You teach around those patients, you know, so if they come in with a, a problem that the, the residents haven't seen yet. So, for example, uh, if the patient comes in with a subarachnoid hemorrhage or traumatic brain injury, we'll do some teaching around how to manage that and then come up with a, a plan for the patient. And just do that with your 12-ish patients that you see. The afternoon is dedicated to family meetings and procedures, and then any new admissions that might be coming through the door. So for me, it's at an academic site, it's predominantly family meetings, communicating with families, managing expectations, which is a massive part of what we do. We wind down the day, we go around another time with the on-call team to notify them about some overnight issues that we perceive to happen. And then if you're on call, you go home, hopefully, and wait for the and answer calls from the on-call team and or come in if there's something urgent or a procedure that they're not familiar with. And then um, your day starts all over again. What kind of procedures do intensivists in your role do? Yeah, so the run-of-the-mill stuff is intubations, central lines, so all sites like jugular, subclavian or femoral lines, arterial lines. We do chest tubes or pigtail insertions if we need to drain anything in the chest cavity. Paracentesis, common one we'll do, if, especially if you're at a liver site or lumbar punctures. Those would be the top few Cardioversions, you'll see that every once in a while. Uh, bronchoscopies, I can't believe I forgot about that. Bronchoscopies, um, clear out lung secretions or to get samples in a immunocompromised patient. Tracheostomies, depending on what site you're at, we'll, uh, we'll do our own. Assisting with sedation for procedures that are, you know, for example, if someone's getting a upper GI scope and they're unstable or not intubated, we'll help with sedation there. Those are the, the bulk of the procedures. Can you elaborate a bit more on kind of what the hours look like, both when you're on and off call? Yeah, so when you're on call, I'll just give an example. You start on the Monday, as you mentioned, you, you come in between 7, 7.30. Your day, depending on the action at the end of the day, sometimes things are quiet, you know, and you just go home and wait for calls but sometimes it's you know there's a couple things that need to be tidied up maybe there's a couple procedures that need to be done there's a new admission that comes through the door so you you stabilize the patient or just make sure that your orders and the plan is clear you say you go home anywhere between 5 30 and say 7 30 and then depending on the busyness or the comfort level of the resident you can get calls every 
couple hours or texts, I should say, even uh, every couple hours. You also get calls from outside hospitals for assistance or for transfers. So a rough night, you would sleep two to four hours somewhere in there total. But some nights you just, it's hard. Like you're in your bed, but the night it's broken up because of the number of uh, calls. Sometimes you'll have to come in in the middle of the night to help out with something or if someone's really unstable. The next day you're there till, like you come in, do the same thing as you did before. You're there till anywhere from three to five o'clock and then hopefully go home, go to bed early, recharge, and then you're on call the next day. So um, that's that's a, that's a hard part of the job that it's a week of pretty high hours there. But, um, you know, sometimes you have good weeks. So you do a week like that, and then mm. are you one week on, one week off? No. So there's normal ICU weeks, and then you also have what we call race weeks or rapid assessment of critical events. It's basically like ICU on wheels. So say you have a patient on the ward that is unstable, they'll call the race team, and we'll go up and assess them, decide if they need admission or if they just need some management that could be done on the floor. So we do weeks of that as well. So for me... I do about 14 weeks of normal ICU and then another six weeks of race. So it ends up being like every, you're on one week and then you're off like a week and a half-ish, almost two weeks-ish. And there's just a lot of variety in, in, in practice, depending if you're in the community or depending if you're a heavy researcher. So like the lowest number that I know of is about 10 weeks a year plus five weeks of race. Those are usually our researchers. So there's, I mean, you do have time to recover for sure. But this is what the beautiful thing about ICU is that depending on where you work, like that's a lot of time to hone your craft. That's why I was, I've been always in love with the lifestyle. We have been told, and you've kind of alluded to this a little bit, that a specialty can vary heavily by practice setting. Uh, so why did you choose to pursue a career at an academic institution and can you compare and contrast them to your experiences in community? Yeah, definitely. So I wanted to do an academic job because I love teaching. I love working with the kids. Like I feel like they give you energy. You also learn a lot from them because they're always really a finger on the pulse with the latest, like not necessarily ICU stuff. You don't learn that much, but you'll learn internal medicine stuff or whatever their home specialty is. They'll be totally attuned to what the latest is so the the advantages of the academic site is you got the you got the learners you get to teach your calls are a lot easier <laughs> a lot easier because you the kids are doing the work essentially um you also have fellows if you have a fellow on call with you that's another person that receives calls before it gets to you so you know those calls that you have a fellow on they're really nice the disadvantage is you your skills diminish, like you don't get to do as many procedures. For example, all the lines almost are done by either the kids or the fellows, the intubations, sometimes the Bronx will do, depending on, you know, the level of um, experience in the ICU in general. So yeah, you, you could go months without doing a, a procedure. Whereas in the community, this is what I like is I don't like the call. I don't like you know, when I work in Montfort, I don't like going in the hospital at three in the morning to admit somebody with urosepsis. But if they need the procedures, I get to still do, like, I could still do all my lines. I still do the chest tubes, the intubation. Like, I still feel like my 
my skills are going like this because of my community job. But once again, the disadvantage are the knights. That's that's the the balancing act. And the other advantage is in the community, if you didn't have any inclination to do any academic work, man, that's you got well, I'm going to do some quick math, probably 30 plus odd weeks of doing whatever you want, literally. Is there, this is a very broad question, but is there a specific clinical encounter or, or experience in your field that has just stuck with you as particularly poignant? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's, I mean, there's a few, there's two sides of that. There's one, there's the connection piece, because I think, you know, in ICU, it, like if patients are going to survive, they're going to survive. I, I really think that I don't make a difference too much whether I'm there or not there. Like, honestly, like whether it's me or another intensivist, we all can stabilize a patient. And I think if, if they're going to survive, it's not because of something that myself or my colleagues are doing. For the most part, there's exceptions for sure. But what I think really makes the difference is the connections with the families. 20% of our patients die. And if you can really make that experience less difficult by being present, by being a good communicator, by holding a hand when you need to, by really showing that you care, it is it makes all the difference in the world for them. I remember early in my career, we had a patient that she was young. I remember at the time, she even reminded me of my wife because she's a cyclist and gone to an accident and ended up being brain dead. And just that interaction with that family of first having to tell them that their daughter is brain dead and having to bring that news to them and seeing the pain, like, especially being a father now, I, I, I specifically remember the father's face, like his only daughter and just being with them working working with them through this unbearably difficult time and then seeing them transition to agreeing to donate her organs and supporting them through that and seeing that there was a light in this extremely dark time yeah I'll never forget that like that always that was a a time where I felt like being present being available being empathetic all made a difference to them and the whole experience. And when they when they thank you at the end of something like that, like it just it meant the world. And then another time, this is a recent memory, was uh, during COVID, we saw a patient that was, you know, my age that was essentially dying from COVID. And this was early on. And it was ultra scary because we were all kind of still nervous about what the future looks like when uh, in terms of dealing with COVID. And so... When he was on the maximum life support, when his kidneys started failing, when we needed to try and get him to a scanner to make sure that, you know, we weren't missing anything. When we called every colleague in Ontario, it felt like to, to see if there's anything else we could be doing and collectively as a team, putting the fears aside and saying like, our focus is now, we're not going to lose this guy. We need to focus. We need to like put our energy here and not get distracted, not be worried about what if, what if, and just do our jobs. And to see him pull through and to see him home now with his family in a time where we were so scared and we he was on the brink and the, the, the bonding of the team to, to say like, hey, okay, we're focused, 
We're going to do our best to salvage his life. And uh, despite our fears, despite it being COVID, despite everyone wearing ultra PPE, and it was, I was never more proud of our team or to be part of the team. You know, it was just this collective, amazing effort. We were all on the same page. And I remember at the end of the end of like a shift where we truly got him more stabilized. I just looked at our team. I'm like, guys, just recognize this was amazing work today. Amazing. Dallas's line, CT scan. I had to flip him on his stomach and the slightest, like if a tube came out, if the catheter came out, like if anything got dislodged, he was done. Absolutely would have been, it would have been a disaster. Navigating through that was, was incredible. So at the end of the day, I remember just being like, guys, like that was incredible. Like you guys did amazing work today. You just go home feeling good. Knowing that he's home, survived with his family. I was like, this is why we got into this game, yo. Thank you for sharing those stories. I think it is so nice to hear about how medicine is more than just sort of the skills you learn. Um, and it's so much about relating to people, both the patient side, their family, colleagues and teammates and all of that. And it's really nice to kind of hear stories of that in practice. Absolutely. Learn the basics, learn the what you need to know about how to diagnose an MI and all that, but recognize that what's going to separate you is going to be your communication skills at all levels. You want that patient interaction, the communicating with your team, allied health, all that stuff is separate you from the others. Like these are what really distinguishes you and will allow you to be overall a better clinician. If this is what you're in it for, to be able to help people, it's going to be your communication skills that are, are going to make the difference. So I know it's soft skills, but it it's everything. When we're reading about different specialties and searching online, because clinical experience is pretty limited at the moment, what is something about your job that we won't see on paper when we're reading about it? That you won't see on paper. Um, you do have to learn how to manage a team. Like, like that's a skill that matters. Like you, you do it without thinking and you do it out of necessity, but you should actually think about an approach to this if you're going to be an academic intensivist. On a typical day, especially July, there's more numbers. So I will have a senior fellow, a junior fellow, probably four residents at least, one or two medical students, a respiratory therapist, physiotherapist, sometimes a social worker, all rounding with us. And if you aren't aware of the sentiment in the room or the the feeling or the engagement, things will get lost. You know, like if you're you're saying some orders and the kids are, are kinda like into their phone or whatever or not paying attention, you gotta be attuned with that. Because if they don't write that LASIX order and especially if you forgot to check, that's gonna compromise patient care. If you are not being receptive to feedback or to ideas, that that plan that the respiratory therapist had to wean that patient off the vent, which was a good one, and he or she is not mentioning because you're being difficult, that's compromising patient care. You got to think about how you could be receptive to people's ideas and without dismissing and letting them feel part of a team or else, you know, you, you'll go solo. The other one, too, is a pharmacist. I can't tell you how many times a pharmacist has pulled out some genius plays, like genius moves. You want to switch that antibiotic? Don't forget that 
they had resistance to that in 2016 or whatever last time they admitted okay cool we'll stick with the mural panel you have to give them an opportunity to to shine and the other thing too is remember if you got learners there they're gonna remember through experience so i i often think there's eight ways to do things sometimes so say like we want to diurese a patient or get you know get some fluid off them some docs will be dogmatic about a lasix infusion Sometimes they'll say, oh, you could do LASIK boluses. Sometimes you could say you could give albumin and LASIKs to try and get them more enhanced. As a as a guy running the team, if Hannah says she wants to try the LASIKs infusion, but I want to just, just do boluses, is it worth the fight? Like, let let's see, let Hannah see what it's like. If she does her LASIKs infusion and it's going nowhere, it's in, the, it's in their mind grapes. It's in, the, you know what I mean? It's stuck. So then it'd be like, oh, remember when I tried to do that? So this time I'm going to try and do the Lasix bolus. I'll give a big bolus and see what happens in this context. And that's going to stick. So, you know, I don't, if it's something that is going to be detrimental to patient care, then I'm, of course I'm going to step. But if it's like, if something's like you're waffling on, where it's like, uh, you know, you got multiple options, just go, let the kids go. Let them go and see what happens. For that opportunity, maybe they're right. You know, so I think that's one thing is it's important to learn how to manage your team. Useful advice, regardless of the specialty, because medicine is a team sport. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned many times about side hustles and projects. Is there one in particular that you are most proud or excited or passionate about that we can highlight? Just top of mind for sure is the podcast. I'll tell you the background about it. So we, our group was doing research for years and we were producing some high quality content in my opinion, but like it wasn't changing the needle at all for improving resource use, reducing spending, improving quality. Nothing was getting traction. So we thought maybe, you know, let's think of some non-conventional ways that, to get the word out. So we started this podcast in September and our worlds have changed. It's been amazing. So the show's called Solving Healthcare. We look at ways to just how, how can we make healthcare more sustainable? How can we improve care for for the greater good? And so our topics range from futile care in the ICU, from personal stories or patient stories with like uh, we had Cindy Hooper who did a triathlon, the Ironman triathlon while on chemotherapy. So talk about resilience, mindset, and uh, how physical health can improve your mental health and vice versa. We've done a lot of COVID content, you know, just to have a lot of balanced approach when it comes to that. And then lifestyle stuff like intermittent fasting, for example, to get our population healthier, exercise, what exercise tips we have for people to try and give their best chance of combating COVID-19 even. So yeah, we a large range of topics, but with the main premise of how we can make healthcare more sustainable for, for us. Because as you guys know, baby boomers are going to be hitting the peak of resource utilization. So we need to think really hard about how we could optimize it. So yeah, that's, that's the show. That sounds great. You have to go hit subscribe. Oh yeah. Hit subscribe, download YouTube. We're on everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. Hit that up. Solving healthcare. So what makes you so proud of the podcast? The the podcast, the reason I'm, I'm especially proud of that is because like there's been some things that have come out of it that's affected some lives. We were able to really amplify feeding frontline staff during COVID. You know, our goal was to raise $3,000. We ended up raising 33000 to feed frontline staff. 
We started this directly from the show and, and talking about kids' development and with mental health. We started a charity called Bridges Over Barriers, which has raised almost 70000 for social workers to just help kids provide them with basic needs. So if a kid needs shoes, they need a bus pass, the social worker can, instead of all the red tape they would normally go through, they could just say like, hey, let's help out little Jimmy and make sure that he's got his basic needs so that he could just focus on school and be a happy-go-lucky kid and not end up in our ICU. The things that have kind of spun from that, like even having a platform to talk about anti-black racism through the show too, which is, you know, something that I'm very passionate about going through what I've gone through in my life and having an avenue to express my experience and concerns. Like, I think that's been an extremely amazing gift. Do you have any final words of wisdom or pieces of advice for our med student listeners? Yes, I have a few. One, especially in the context of burnout, we had a Ryan Segay who committed suicide in, back in December of U, at U of O. Self-care, realize that you're one person. You don't have to do it all. Do what you need to do to stay grounded. Don't lose yourself in medicine and because you play the game, right? Like you, you try and please everybody to get into your residency program, your fellowship, your staff job, but be yourself. If you be yourself, good things will happen. You'll, you'll be attracted to a, a specialty that will be, that will embrace you. But this is all good for mental health and self-care to, to stay genuine and you'll be found. Okay. Like you'll, you'll find a home where your, your personality suits you. And, and, but if, if you can't be yourself within a specialty, specialty or a group, it's not for you straight up. And then the, Last thing I would say is don't be afraid to, like, I call it changing the boogie. Like, don't be afraid to go against the norm. You guys, a group a few years ahead of you, well, many years now, I guess, said, like, you know, these 28 hours of call is insane. So let's let's develop a a way of making call more logical, of doing 18-hour shifts. Like, if it ain't right, don't be be afraid to change the boogie, man, and decide – what's a best approach to whatever it might be. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been just absolutely wonderful. Hey, Hannah and Ann, it was my pleasure. And I hope you guys continue to get the word out. Having guests on talk, speak their mind about how they feel about their, their craft, I think is genius. So keep doing what you're doing and good things are going to happen. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Northern Exposure. To suggest a guest, send us feedback, or learn more, check out our website, northernexposurepodcast.ca. We are both students at McMaster's Michael G. DeGroote School of Medicine, but this podcast is in no way affiliated with the school or program, and all views expressed are ours alone. Views expressed by guests on our show are personal opinions and should not be considered representative of any hospital, university, or other organization with which they may be affiliated. Included music is a script by Mila from the Free Music Archive, utilized under the Creative Commons Share Like License. Thank you.